This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to Mind Love, episode 249. Today's episode is all about the science of making and keeping friends as an adult. A lot of our social realities are based on our biases, interpretations, baggage, more so than how other people actually feel and think about us. We think self-esteem is a gauge of how we feel about ourselves, but researchers have argued there's this this theory called the sociometric theory that in fact our self-esteem is how we think others view us. It's like our gauge for how much we're belonging. And if we think everybody hates us, it's very hard to have high self-esteem, which is why I think the, you know, assuming people like you is very, very valuable. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. If this is your first time giving your mind a little love, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. Mind love is a habit, and the more you give your mind that love and intention, the better you'll feel about yourself and your life. Plus, it's really a win-win because more subscribers means mind love attracts even more amazing guests to bring you their wisdom. So don't forget to subscribe. Today, I'd like to share a review from Lightworker Dreams who says, Worth my time. What a great podcast with some very special guests who actually provide action steps too. Melissa really makes the conversations fun and enlightening. See guys, short and sweet reviews are absolutely amazing too. (laughs) Thank you so much for leaving this review. Like I said, all of them totally make my day. Why is it so hard making friends as an adult? Or at least making really good friends? I feel like meeting people is pretty easy. I've moved around a lot, so I've gotten used to putting myself out there, just posting on local Facebook groups, explicitly asking for friends. So for me, that part's not a huge problem. What's harder is getting past the surface level phase. Like, hey, what part of town are you in? What do you do? What about your partner? Got kids? Sometimes I do miss my 20s, where I'd just go to a party and instantly click with some girl and we'd end up hiding out in the bathroom all night doing lines of coke off the tub and by the next day we were inseparable oh the good old days (laughs) no i would not trade any of that for the life i have now even for the insta besties it took me way too long to realize but most of those friendships ended up being a chemical bond anyways and when the drugs ran out so did the love but as toxic as the lifestyle was I feel like if I can find a teeny tiny takeaway, it would be the vulnerability aspect. Those synthetic heart openers I was addicted to really make it impossible to keep your walls up. Maybe a small part of me expects that feeling is still possible without the drugs. And that's why so many encounters feel a little lackluster. For quite a long time, I felt like I set a bar that's impossible to reach without the drugs. And maybe the reality is I'm just never going to feel that overwhelming love for a platonic friend again. But lately, my thoughts on that are changing. I feel like I've crossed a threshold with new friendships. 
I think part of it is that I'm settling into the new me more comfortably. You know, the version of me that's a mom who doesn't drink and goes to bed early so she can wake up at the crack of dawn. I left the pity party, stopped emotionally clinging to the toxic binders that solidified friendships, and I started to reinvent my friendships and even my expectations for them. I also started showing up as a much better friend, prioritizing connections and hangouts because my lifestyle no longer necessitates meeting new people. All of this started with knowing myself better, knowing who I am, the value that I bring to a relationship, and what I'm actually looking for in those relationships. But even that only gets you so far. For us grown-ass adults, the rest takes work, initiative, an open heart, and some people skills. And yes, it can seem daunting and a little bit scary, especially if you haven't done it before. But the good news is, there are specific research-based ways to improve the number and quality of your connections using the insights of attachment theory and all of the latest scientific research on friendships. So today we're going to talk about a clear and actionable blueprint for forging strong, lasting connections with other people and for becoming our happiest and most fulfilled selves in the process. So our guest for today is Marissa Franco. She's a psychologist and national speaker. She's a professor at the University of Maryland and author of Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends. So three key things we will learn are the biggest mindset shift that you can take on when meeting new people, how to deal with conflict in friendships and how to decide which ones are even worth the effort, and how to optimize your socializing efforts and keep the friends that you meet. And if this is your first time giving your mind a little love, I have a few goodies for you. First, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And second, sign up for the Morning Mind Love. Think of it like a weekday oracle from your highest self to help you start each day with a positive focus. Plus, you'll get two gifts absolutely free, a 30-minute binaural meditation and 30 days of journaling prompts to help you remember who you truly are. So join over 9,000 people and go to mindlove.com to sign up or text the word MORNING to 33777. And now let's welcome Marissa Franco to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Melissa. So what's your story? What inspired you to dedicate an entire book to the art of making friends? Yeah, so I didn't always value friendship. Um, it's it's kind of because I hope people don't go through what I did, which is, you know, in my young 20s, I was in these romantic relationships that weren't working out and I felt really bad. So I decided to start this wellness group with my friends where each week we would practice wellness, cook, meditate, do yoga. And I just kind of realized, wow, the most healing part of this is just being in community with people I love every week. And I think that part of the reason I felt so bad when I went through these breakups is because I felt romantic love was the only love that mattered, the only love that made me worthy. But I looked around at all my friends and I was like, this love matters too. Like, this is a legitimate form of love. And it's like I had been walking around thinking I was walking on concrete sidewalks and they were gold, right? And I just had to notice that and had to realize that. And after that, I just really began questioning the hierarchy our society places on love and seeing the ways that I felt that it was harmful for people both in and outside of traditional spousal relationships and really wanting a book that 
would level this hierarchy. And so that's what I hoped for from Platonic. I had a recent experience too. When you say you haven't always valued friendships, that rang so true to me, but it wasn't on purpose. And I don't think I realized I was doing it at the time. But for me, yeah, it was like the goal was always like a romantic relationship. Friendships kind of fell between that. I always had a lot of people around. And it wasn't until I started feeling like I didn't have those close friendships. And it was when the I was in the middle of adulthood, or I guess it's not even in the middle now if you consider how long we live. But it was like in my later 20s where friendships stopped happening so organically. And I was partying a lot, and, and then I was shifting to not partying a lot. And so there was a period in this the party days where I started to realize during certain moments, like maybe needing a ride to the airport or like something bad happening and actually needing support. And I wasn't supplying a party or a bunch of alcohol, and suddenly people weren't showing up. And in that moment, I realized maybe I don't have as many friends as I thought. And then moving into a more responsible, less chaotic way of life, just missing the closeness and almost being like, this is why I drank so much because at least someone was always willing to do it with me. (laughs) (laughs) And so I'm wondering though, what is it about adulthood that is so difficult to make friends? uh, That's a great question, Melissa. So when we are kids, we have a certain type of infrastructure. Sociologist Rebecca Adams says that it is this continuous unplanned interaction like you get through school and shared vulnerability that makes friendships happen organically. So gym class, recess, lunch, right? We are letting our guard down. But as adults, we don't have that infrastructure. We go to work. We're often not very vulnerable at work, which is why one study actually found the more time you spend at work with someone, the less close you feel. And we we rely on this template from childhood, not realizing I'm not in that same environment. So I can't necessarily rely on that. And so as adults, friendship, I think we should just embrace that friendship doesn't happen organically. I think the reality would be it's far less likely to happen organically. Um, And in fact, this belief that it does is actually linked to us being more lonely over time, whereas people that really see friendship as taking effort are less lonely. That is interesting that the more time you spend with people in work, the less close to them you feel. Whereas in childhood, you spend a lot of time with somebody and you know, you just click or maybe what, what's the difference there? Do you see like, why is it having the opposite effect just due to our age? Yeah, I think it's the vulnerability piece. We're interacting and continuously showing one side of ourselves, one dimension of ourselves. The depth of our relationship is based on how many dimensions we are able to show in a relationship. And I talk about this when I do like speaking engagements on belonging at work. We have this employee myth that I go to work and I am an employee and that replaces all my fundamental human needs, right? Like we don't still need to belong for these 40 hours a week that, you know, most of us are at work, but in fact, we do. And when we belong, we're more fulfilled. The work is, you know, more meaningful, more engaged, produce better outcomes. Our teams are more cohesive. Um, Taking a break and talking to someone actually increases like our brain's bandwidth for work, right? So So connection is fundamental everywhere, but I don't know if all workplaces have gotten the memo on that. That makes a lot of sense because when we're children, we don't really know how to be fake. (laughs) And not even necessarily (laughs) how to be fake, but how to like project an image. Like I'm trying to be this. And year after year, we learn that more and more. Like I can look back and see how I started trying to be something in middle school. I started trying to be something even more in high school than 
I think in college I was too drunk to try to be anything, but <laughs> and then adulthood, it's like, okay, well, this is what success looks like here. Now I'm in this group. This is what that version of me looks like. And so it it can be more difficult to open ourselves up enough to even really know if somebody really likes us for us or for that image that we're projecting. And I think mm-hmm. what a lot of people do is especially as adults when they start finding themselves in a situation like maybe oh well I'm I haven't had kids yet or I haven't met the love of my life maybe it's just never going to happen for me or I don't have a lot of friends maybe this is just who I am it's almost like we justify our situation and then convince ourselves that that's the best way to be. Not saying one is right or the other, but I want to know what's at stake for the people that might be thinking that. Oh, it's okay that I don't have any friends. I'm I'm happy with just my work colleagues and my family. But why does friendship really matter? Great question. So loneliness, its impact on our health, this is a popular statistic, is, is akin to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Our level of connection affects how long we live more than our diet more than how much we exercise. It is maybe the number one predictor of both our physical and our mental health. Very happy people, their most distinguishing characteristic, according to the research, is that they feel connected, not even how many positive experiences happen to them, right? And so just like we need food, water, oxygen to function well, we need connection, right? We just are not, we we can't function well without connection as a social species. We don't always notice this, but for example, you know, when we're lonely, our our sleep is worse. We It's not just a feeling, but it's also a perception of the world. Lonely people think people are rejecting them when they're not. They like humanity less. They have less compassion for others. Um, they like their roommates less. They are in a state of hypervigilance for rejection. Because if you think about this evolutionarily, it makes sense because you were alone on the savannah. You were separated from your tribe when you're lonely. But our body's still doing those same things, even though it's not true. So our body's in overdrive, level of like inflammation, um, a level of co- consistent and chronic stress. Like that's what loneliness is and its impact on our bodies. And why is friendship a specifically a form of connection that's really important? Because researchers have actually identified that there's three types of loneliness, only one that can be fulfilled by a spouse. There is intimate loneliness, which is, a desire for a close relationship, like a spouse or a best friend, relational loneliness, which is a desire for someone as close to us as a close friend, and then collective loneliness, which is desire for a community working towards a common goal, like your place of worship or your bowling league or your community service organization. And if we miss out on any of those, we can feel the pangs of loneliness. I think a lot, you know, myself included, really felt this in the pandemic that just being around one person wasn't enough. It wasn't enough for us to feel healthy, to feel good, to feel like our very selves because each human brings out a different dimension of us that they have in common. So they they sort of welcome that to manifest. So for our very identities, we need to be surrounded by different people in an entire community. That's a point that not a lot of people really understand the depths of, that connection really shapes who we are. And it's not even just that it brings out different sides of ourselves, it's that it also is reflecting back different sides of ourselves. So we're not even just being differently, we're seeing ourselves differently, which can fuel different versions of us that we didn't even know existed. I know for me, there have been different friendships or different relationships that I've had that I'm like, I didn't even know I was capable of this part of my personality. Where'd you come from? (laughs) It's like this little glimmer of like a facet of my diamond I didn't see shimmering before. (laughs) Yes. 
we're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family or you have a work deadline or something unexpected comes up and you're all stressed out and it feels like all the work is out the window. That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. I'm constantly sharing with my clients to stop searching in life and instead start aligning. It's true with purpose, with relationships, with higher versions of yourself, and it's also true for hiring. The best way to search is actually just to match with Indeed. Indeed is your one-stop hiring platform with millions of job seekers visiting every month, and their powerful matching engine helps you find quality candidates fast. Plus, Indeed lets you schedule interviews, screen applicants, and message candidates all in one place. But Indeed isn't just about speed. They also deliver quality. According to a recent Indeed survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. I love Indeed because it makes hiring so much easier. I'm all about alignment in all areas of my life, and that includes people I hire to work in my business. So I need a hiring partner that makes it simple to find candidates with the right skills. And that's Indeed. And what's really cool is Indeed's matching engine gets smarter the more you use it, learning from your preferences and over 140 million qualifications. Plus, I love that I can do all my hiring in one place. It's just one less thing to keep track of between all of the other things. So join over 3.5 million businesses worldwide who rely on Indeed to find great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash mindlove. Just go to Indeed.com slash mindlove right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mindlove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Yeah. And you're so right. There's just such an intimacy between our relationships and our sense of self. It would, it's very hard to have a sense of self when we are in isolation. Now I think spending time alone is important to, for self-reflection, but when it gets to a state of loneliness, when you don't have those connections, what happens is to the, the chronic stress state of, of loneliness, like any trauma, not that I'd say loneliness is a trauma per se, it can sort of replace your personality, right? That stress state is very strong Um, and so how you might usually think and feel like for me, how I define authenticity in the book is who you are when you feel safe, who you are when you're not hijacked by defense mechanisms. And if you're not connected, you're not feeling safe. So it's hard to understand who am I really, how do I really show up in the world? You kind of touched on it a little earlier when you, you talked about how people that don't have a lot of friends have this hypervigilance around rejection. But I'm wondering if you can go deeper in the idea that you bring up in your book about how our mental health issues are fueled by kinks and how we relate to others. 
Yeah. So in the book, I argue that our personalities are reflections of our connections or disconnection, you know, like so many traits, like, you know, whether we are friendly, warm, open, agreeable, combative, aggressive, right? These are all predicted by our past experiences of connection. The thing that happens is that when we go through difficult connection experiences, what we incorporate into our our bodies and our personalities is these strategies so that if this threat to connection comes up again, I'm going to be more prepared for it, right? So for example, you know, if you were grew up in a household where nobody attended to your emotions and you had to handle everything on your own, now you go into new relationships thinking, I'm not going to be vulnerable. I'm always going to be self-sufficient. That kind of becomes part of your personality. But these these protective strategies that we embrace, and this is people with insecure attachment style that we can can talk about that later, these people that have these disconnection experiences develop these strategies that become part of their personalities. And the goal is, is it's adaptive for their original circumstance, but it's no longer adaptive to never be vulnerable. It's no longer adaptive to you know, cling so closely to people that um, it's hard for them to have agency in a relationship with you. It's no longer adaptive to never bring up conflict, but your body hasn't necessarily noticed that. And what happens is these connection issues from the past affect your ability to connect in the future. And anything that disconnects us harms our mental health and well-being because our level of connection is sort of one of the, it's the closest neighbor to our mental health and well-being. So, a lot of our attachment styles comes from basically our past experience, especially within childhood, because it's just so deeply ingrained. It kind of becomes a subconscious part of who we are. But how do we get clear on what our personal attachment styles are? Because I know sometimes it's like you can't read the label when you're inside the bottle. <laughs> you don't necessarily mm-hmm. see how you're doing. You can clearly look at your friend Michelle and be like, oh, yeah, you're anxious avoidant. But like <laughs> when you're like, oh, but me? I don't know. I'm just a normal girl over here. So yeah. how do we really see that for what it is? Yeah. So there's a certain set of characteristics that we see in each anxiously attached people, form really close friendships really quickly, overshare because, you know, they fear abandonment. That's a way of testing people to see if they'll stick around. Don't bring up conflict because they're afraid people will abandon them. Tend to have more volatile, more fragile friendships, are overly self-sacrificing, like do whatever their friend wants without thinking about what their needs are in friendships. And they take things really personally. They often misfire and assume they're being rejected even when things are ambiguous, like a friend hasn't answered them or a friend gave was in a bad mood when they hung out. Um, and so that's anxious attachment. Avoidant attachment. They're not vulnerable in their friendships. They don't invest much in their friendships. They're the friends that are sort of one-sided. You travel and you move and you hope to keep in touch with them and they don't really make any effort. They seem to enjoy connection less. They'll, they're more likely to ghost on you. Um, they're very threatened when someone tries to get them to open up or if someone's vulnerable with them, they think it's because they are they have some underlying agenda to it. They don't trust when other people love them and value them. They think people are doing it for some other reason. Securely attached people, they assume people like them. They are comfortable with intimacy. They have probably longstanding close friendships that they've kept for a long time. 
They're comfortable addressing conflict in friendships without attacking other people. Yeah, they're just more likely to keep and maintain and initiate new friendships. I call them like super friends. They're the friends that make us feel more comfortable, more safe. Uh, They're kind of healing as friends. I definitely have some anxious in there. I believe now I'm more secure. I've done a lot of work on it. But man, for the longest time, I would go to a party, have a great time, make all these like possibly new friends or connections and then leave. And then all of a sudden start second guessing everything I did. Or (laughs) if somebody takes too long to call me back, I would start making up a story in my head and like replaying everything that I did. And then all of a sudden like, oh, it was that tone I used right there. They were offended. It was just a joke. Oh my God. (laughs) And it's so exhausting. Like it is, it's actually even more than exhausting. It's depressing in a lot of ways because it takes a real toll on you when you don't trust the connections that you made because you're not trusting any of the work that you've put in. You're not trusting You're not valuing yourself as a person. You're basically creating a reality outside of the reality that exists, which is only putting you on a further level from the person that you're trying to connect with because they're living in a whole different reality than you just created in your mind. (laughs) So once we identify what style that we are, how do we go about mending that or um, making possible changes so that we're not just sort of sealing in our own fate in this one attachment style. Yeah, so that is a great point because I do want to mention sometimes I talk about attachment styles and people are like, well, good for those people with healthy parents. Good for those people (laughs) with healthy childhoods. Where does that leave me, right? That attachment style is certainly changeable, that some research finds your attachment style is more likely to change than it is to stay the same. Even knowing about attachment styles can help change your attachment style. So we're not here to say you're doomed. I think we're here to say, actually knowing this is very empowering because if you don't know it, you assume that your issues are just because of the world and that the world is cruel or that no one can be trusted or that everybody's going to abandon you. And if everything's in the world, then you can't change it and you are doomed. But if there's behaviors you can engage in that will improve your relationships, you're not doomed and there's hope. And so that's what I hope to be the takeaway when I talk about attachment theory And the whole book is really about all the research and how we can become more secure in our friendships. I'll share one of my most well-received tips. You know, there's this study where they expose kids to these vignettes where basically a friend in a cafeteria drops some milk on you. And how do you interpret it, right? And the secure kids were like, oh, no sweat. My friend's clumsy. You know, it's cool. And the insecurely attached kids were like, he's out to get me. He's trying to humiliate me. And now I want to like put throw some milk back on him, right? And the difference is that these secure people, they just assume people like them. And that is just a really powerful way to find security. When when a situation is ambiguous, assume positive intent, assume people like you. And according to the research on something called the acceptance prophecy, when researchers told people, you're going to go into this group and you're going to be liked based on your personality profile, this was a total lie, but it made people warmer, more agreeable, friendlier, and it was actually a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? And so, and to me, I'm, you know, more securely attached now, obviously, from writing the book. It's not that I don't have insecure moments still, but it's more so I, when I feel insecure, I feel like I have two selves. I have the self that feels insecure and the second self who's like, 
I think I'm going to let myself feel this, but I think some of the interpretations I'm, I'm making, I'm going to pause until I assume that they're true. It's like I hold my insecurities with more humility, right? Whereas people with insecure attachment style, they think their insecurities are fact and reality. So it gets really hard for them to separate themselves from it. Now, when I share this advice, people are like, easier said than done, right? My brain is like telling me the exact opposite. How do I actually do that? Well, I really like this psychologist, Rick Hansen's work. He does work on taking in the good. And what he kind of argues is our brain is built to focus on the negative. We have these negativity bias. So you need to make it a practice of actually noticing and savoring positive moments. So when someone smiles at you, holds the door for you, returns your text message, pause and actually take that in until it stirs a feeling in your body. Because he sort of argues that when you focus on something and when it stirs emotion, you release dopamine, norepinephrine, this kind of leads to brain change. And what is state becomes straight, that when you do something repeatedly, it starts to become part of who you are. So, so next time someone does even the littlest, slightest thing, nice, kind to you, just focus on it. I like to just take a deep breath and think about it throughout that deep breath, just like 30 seconds or at the end of the day, like going through your day. What are some nice moments of social safety that I experienced today? How can I kind of focus on those and really take those in in my body? That's a great tip because I think we forget that all of our habits are work the same as building a muscle and that includes our habits of thought. And so just knowing that we have this thing kind of working against us and it's just a natural process and it's our brains trying to keep us safe really but that we have to build that muscle, the opposite muscle, if we want to counteract that, it's just powerful because we stop taking our thoughts so personally, which then helps us stop taking everyone else's actions so personally. And I know for me, one of the things that I have done is talked myself through the negativity. Like, you know, there's a weird text back that can be read in three different tones. And for some reason, I choose the most negative one. And then I'm rethinking everything I texted before. And suddenly, maybe we're in a fight that the other person doesn't know about. <laughs> and But that can be so much more exhausting than just being like, no, this person loves me. Like, think of all of the conversations that we had. This one random weird text isn't going to break this, you know, stuff like that. And so the focusing on the positive really is, it's like bringing the gratitude practice to another like facet of your life of just, yeah, instead of focusing on the negative, as helpful as it can be to talk yourself through those negative moments sometimes, sometimes it's just easier to highlight the positive so it's not leaning so heavily in one direction. But I know also one of the things that I have realized is that not just me, but a lot of people have reached out just saying, it's not even just about keeping these friendships, about like maintaining them or having more good moments with the friends I have. The older you get, the more friends move away, the harder it is to make new friends. And it just feels like that friendship pool is dwindling. So what are some of the practices you recommend for making new friends as an adult, especially if you're not going to an office anymore? Just so much is done remotely. It's kind of a whole new environment and people don't really know what to fall back on. And now for another episode of Lies We've Been Told About Our Health. We've all heard we need eight glasses of water a day, right? Well, hydration isn't actually about water intake. It's about the balance of water and electrolytes so that our bodies are actually absorbing the water instead of just passing it through. 
A lot of people go for those sugary sports drinks, but let's be real, those do more harm than good. I've found a better solution. Element. It's a zero-sugar electrolyte drink that's all about effective hydration. Each pack gives you essential electrolytes like sodium and potassium without the unnecessary additives found in other drinks. The team behind Element includes experts in biochemistry and nutrition, so they really know what they're doing. And it's not just for everyday use either. Elite athletes and teams, Olympic weightlifters, CrossFit champions, Navy SEALs, all rely on it too, which to me says a lot about its effectiveness. Here's what makes them really unique. They recently launched a hot chocolate line with flavors like chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. Ever since I went alcohol-free, I've been really intentional about luxurious, health-focused drinks so I can sit back and unwind while actually doing good for my body. And the Element Chocolate Chai is great for relaxing in the evening or warming up after winter sports. And you can try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, you'll get your money back, no questions asked. Receive a free Element sample pack with any order when you purchase through drinkelement.com slash mindlove. That's drinklmnt.com slash mindlove to get a free starter pack with any order. So what are some of the practices you recommend for making new friends as an adult, especially if you're not going to an office anymore? Yeah. Well, first of all, I think reconnection can be a really great tool for friendship because the friend is vetted. And most of our friendships end not because of any big fight, according to the research, but just because they kind of fizzled out. And there's a study that actually found that when we send that reconnection text, people appreciate it more than we predict, right? The negativity bias. Um, so I, I think that's a great idea to start there. Also really helpful for, for introverts. Like, is there someone in your life who you were texting a year ago? You could just flip through your contacts who you would have liked to stay connected with, right? But what else do you do? You know, let's say that there isn't anyone in your life you want to reconnect with. So you have to find new community, Sign up for something that is repeated over time rather than a one-off, like a hiking group, right? Or a language class rather than a language workshop or, you know, a class rather than a, you know, a, a day-long workshop, you know? Anything that you're you're interested in doing as a hobby, do it in community with other people. And the reason being that you're creating continuous unplanned interaction and shared vulnerability, but also that you capitalize on something called the mere exposure effect, which is our tendency to like people the more familiar they are. So this is completely unconscious. Researchers planted this woman in psychology lectures, big lectures. No one remembered the woman. They report liking the woman who showed up for the most lectures, 20% more than the woman that showed up for the least. Other implications of mere exposure effect, when you first meet people, it's weird because your brain is telling you, we don't know them, we don't trust them yet, Right. If we become more comfortable, we like people more, they like us more over time, that means when we first meet, we're weary and we don't like each other as much as we eventually will when we become familiar to each other. My issue in college, I'd show up once. Nobody talked to me. I didn't have fun, right? And I would never show up again, not knowing you have to commit to really get to, to build those relationships. My other problem in college was I would just wait for everybody to approach me. And to make friends, you not only have to overcome overt avoidance, which is our tendency to not show up to things because we're scared, but also covert avoidance. Covert avoidance is you show up physically, but you check out mentally. You're on your phone, you're watching the TV, you're talking to the one person you already know. When you go to that club, that you think it's writing group, you know, whatever your hobby is that you're doing in community, 
actually introducing yourself. Hey, I'm Marissa. You know, it's great to meet you. How long have you been going here? Like, how has it been for you, right? Engaging with people. And then eventually, when you find someone you do really like, generating exclusivity, which means building experiences and memories with that person that you don't share with anyone else, which is is found to deepen our relationship. So asking them, oh, hey, you know, it's been so great to get to know you through this club. Like, would you be open to hanging out before, getting coffee before, going to lunch after? That is really important. Again, people are so afraid, but our negativity bias, you know, there's research on something called the liking gap, which is when strangers interact and predict how much the other likes them, we underestimate how liked we are. So people are less likely to reject you than you think, but you'll only know if you put yourself out there and try. I love the tip of finding something that's recurring because I can't tell you how many times when I lived in LA, I was like, well, I just have to go to all these things. And I'm really good at taking initiative. I've moved so many times. Like I will find a local Facebook group and then like reach out to people. I'll just put a post up. I need friends. This is what I like. (laughs) But one of the things I could have done better is that so often I'd find like a one day event and I feel like it was like filling a leaky bucket in a way because I would meet some really great people, but it would be hard to keep it going. Even if I'd be like, yeah, let's exchange numbers. Let's get together. It was like, we're both busy or, or whatever it was. And so you have they that person has to make a whole new commitment versus the one that they're already making around something that they like, around a common activity. And so you're just kind of guaranteed to meet them and it takes the pressure off of you as the individual to be like, well, they didn't want to get coffee. So then you're questioning, like, maybe they didn't like me. Maybe I'm not, maybe I was too much right there. Versus just kind of showing up, being you. And maybe you can be the person that does that, you know, let's hang out earlier before for coffee or after. Maybe you're you're the type that does that immediately, but maybe it takes you a few times of showing up somewhere and, and then you're able to do that. So I think that's a really great tip. One thing that I I have always struggled with is I'm still expecting that spark with friendships <laughs> in a certain way. And I find that it happens less and less. And so I'll meet somebody new. When I moved to this town, that was a, a really hard thing in the beginning. I, I met a few people and I was like, I don't know. Actually, this person was pretty cool. The conversation was flowing. But I was like, but it's nothing like this past friend and the past friend before. Yeah. Which is funny because the two that I was always comparing it to are two people that we ended up getting to a point in our lives where it was like, okay, we're too different now. The friendship's not working. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, I still held like these old moments. Maybe it was our early 20s. Maybe it was the fact that we did MDMA together so often. Of course, I had this feeling. <laughs> but like, what is that? Is that something that we should be looking for? Is that kind of something that fades with age? Is it rare? Like, what yeah. are your thoughts on the spark? Both and in that, you know, there was a study that found that when people first met, they they were able to at least slightly predict who they'd be friends with weeks later, right? So, so if there's someone you do meet and you're like, oh, I think they're really cool. I always try to go for those because I think they are rare. So, you know, if I think, you know, specifically for me, I really like intellectual chemistry with people where, wow, we're really sharing these new ideas and pushing each other and how we're thinking. So if I meet someone that I have that intellectual chemistry with, I'll be like, oh, I'd love to hang out. Could we exchange contact information? But the other thing is no, because of the mere exposure effect, right? We talked about how we're very different. Our personalities are very different in the beginning versus later on. And some of us are slower to warm up, right? Those of us that have like anxiety, for example, like it just takes longer for our personalities to come out. So I would say if you find the spark, act on it. But if you don't, don't assume that 
you won't build a relationship with time. I like to think back to one of my best friends to this day. We we don't hang out or talk as much because we live in two different areas, but we were inseparable back in high school. And when I think about her personality, she is one of those like takes a little bit of time to really open up. She's a little bit more shy. And I I've reminded myself that when I have new friendships where I'm like, well, if I were to be to have been judging my one of my very best friends like this, <laughs> the first time I met her, like if I met her in my 30s, I probably wouldn't be friends with her. But instead, we went to school together. And so we spent all this time together and I got to see beyond that sort of, you know, shyness exterior and it, there's like this beautiful flower inside. Yeah. <laughs> Said that the cheesiest way that I could, but uh, and so I, I like to remind myself that because sometimes I think when we're looking for the spark, it's just this expectation, which is really just the recipe to creating disappointment. Yes, sometimes yeah. it happens, and look at that as more of a blessing, but don't look at it as like, oh well, it wasn't there, so there's no opportunity beyond this. Sometimes it just takes a, a little bit of scratching. But and sometimes exactly. that person that's having a hard time being authentic is ourselves and we don't even know it. We're so used to being like, well, this person isn't opening up enough that we don't realize that we're kind of closed off. And so mm-hmm. they're they're reflecting that behavior and I love the the definition that you gave earlier about authenticity being like who you are when you feel safe. How do you coach people that feel that have trouble doing that. You know, they have trouble feeling safe right in the moment. Yeah. That is a big, big question. Therapy. (laughs) (laughs) Therapy. Um, But but I, I do think that, right, a lot of our social realities are based on our biases, interpretations, baggage, more so than how other people actually feel and think about us. There was actually a study that found that how much people think their romantic partner valued them was more strongly predicted by how they felt about themselves than how much their romantic partner actually valued them, right? So there's this way that we don't feel safe because we assume that people are judging us, even when we have no evidence of this, right? And so part of it, weirdly, is like to build confidence. I think, you know, there's a non-intuitive way to build confidence, which is that we think self-esteem is a gauge of how we feel about ourselves, but Researchers have argued there's this this theory called the sociometric theory that, in fact, our self-esteem is how we think others view us. It's like our gauge for how much we're belonging. And if we think everybody hates us, it's very hard to have high self-esteem, which is why I think the, you know, assuming people like you is very, very valuable. I think also developing a positive internal voice like self-compassion. It's okay that you feel this way you know, your emotions are valid. Other people feel that same way too. Like treating yourself like you're someone of value can help you go into situations where you feel safe. But the other thing is, if you're anxiously attached, you actually are typically attracted to relationships with people that don't make you feel so safe because you've always had to earn love. That's what's familiar to you and you don't trust it when it comes easily, right? And so anxiously attached people, they engage in what's called fawning behaviors, which means... When they're threatened, they try to get people to like them more. So they end up putting more energy into these relationships with people that are not giving them that investment, right? It's a recipe for disaster because in the long term, you're unwittingly inviting into your life unhealthy relationships. So I also say like, 
part of feeling safe is creating the community that makes you feel safe. And if someone doesn't like you, walk away. Don't work harder. That's a good point. Because on one hand, it's like, yeah, assume people like you. Because most of the time, they probably are going to. But then you go in and you've got this assumption like, okay, I've worked on this. I've done my affirmations. People like me, right? And then you go (laughs) go somewhere. And then you get rejected. And you're like, damn it. (laughs) Everything I thought is true. And you go back into your shell and you never come out. And so I I know in your book, you'd said like, view rejection as something that you can bounce back from instantly. And I think that's a whole practice. Like it's, it's a whole nother practice in dealing with rejection on its own because so often we resist this thing that is so scary to us. And the antidote to that isn't to figure out how to never have that happen. It's to lean into it and yeah. actually experience it and then prove to yourself that, hey, I can survive this. Like, I'm just fine. Like, it's not that big of a deal. And it doesn't have to be a reflection of who I am either. It can just be that, you know, we're two different people. Just like I was talking a minute ago about sometimes I meet somebody who's a perfectly fine human being. And I'm like, there's just not the spark there, you know? And it's like, they might be feeling that exact same thing. Doesn't mean I'm any less of a person. I'm any less likable. It just happens to be that that one person isn't, BFF material for us. (laughs) Exactly. And there's a lot of reasons to be proud of yourself when you're getting rejected because it means that you initiated something, right? And how brave of you to do that. And you can't judge yourself by an outcome you can't control. You can judge yourself by your behavior that you can control. So to me, you've succeeded if you've gotten rejected because you acted in a way with intention, in a way that if you continue to do so, will position you to really get the community that you want. And if you really want to curate your community, rejection will be part of that process, right? People that never get rejected, they're passive. They end up in friendships with people they might not actually like that much, right? Whereas the people who are willing to get rejected, they go for the friendships that they really, really want. And in the long run, they end up with a very fulfilling community of people they love and who, you know, welcome their most authentic self. And you don't get there without rejection. Like there's nothing... You can't do friendship on easy mode. In fact, my niece read my book and I think her takeaway was beautiful, which is for friendship to happen, someone has to be brave. Oh, I love that. Brave is my son's name, so I love it extra. (laughs) So what about dealing with conflict? Because a lot of times maybe we put in this effort and we make a new friend, things are going well, and maybe it's a newer friend or maybe it's a friend we've had forever and all of a sudden conflict comes up. And I've noticed with a lot of people, conflict in an intimate relationship, you assume you're going to try to resolve it for the most part, unless it's breakup worthy, right? You know, you're like, you're mad at the person, you don't talk to them for a day, and then you, you meet them back home and everything's fine. <laughs> Versus a friendship, for a lot of people, feels a little bit more like it's one step out or like, okay, well, it's now teetering and, and it could fall off at any time. <laughs> so... How do you, first of all, decide if, is this friendship worth the conflict? And if you do decide, what do you do to kind of move through it in a way that doesn't damage it in the future? This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I really need to get something off my chest. Being a mom of a three-year-old boy is really freaking hard, and sometimes it has me questioning my sanity. 
But then he'll grab my face and call me his sweet little mama. Yes, that's a real thing he says. (laughs) And it will all melt away until I break his banana. I thought I was done with emotionally abusive relationships, but nope. We all carry around stressors, big and small. And when we keep them all bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's so hard finding friends and family that are unbiased or non judgmental. And therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know? It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of yourself. And BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MindLove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash MindLove. How do you, first of all, decide if, is this friendship worth the conflict? And if you do decide, what do you do to kind of move through it in a way that doesn't damage it in the future? Yeah. So I think thinking about, is this conflict we're having a chapter in the book or is it the book, right? Mm -hmm. Like, is it because, you know, typically this friendship friend is really reliable, but today they bailed very last minute or left me hanging, right? It's worth it if it's just a chapter. If you know that they love you and want the best for you, but an issue has come up. Versus, I don't actually know that they love me and want the best for me because this conflict is a manifestation of a long-running friendship where I have not felt valued. So I think that's how you decide whether to end up, end it or make up. And when you want to have the conflict, this was my biggest growth edge in friendship. I was not having conflict thinking, well, I'm being a good friend by trying to get over it. (laughs) Because... I didn't understand what conflict was. I thought it was, you know, yelling, screaming, Monopoly games toppled. Um, That's, you know, very anxiously attached way of viewing it. And then I read this study that open empathic conflict is linked to deeper intimacy, that these people that address things passive aggressively, they actually raise other people's blood pressure. And I realized, oh, I'm actually harming my friendships when I do this. And I read the work of Virginia Goldner, who's a psychoanalyst who differentiates between flaccid safety where we are good because we're pretending nothing's wrong versus dynamic safety where you're you're good because you rupture and you repair and you rupture and you repair and that she says is the marker of the deeper intimacy so i realized too wow i'm not even accessing this intimacy in my friendships because of my reluctance to engage in this and i also realized that i thought conflict would ruin friendships but it's not conflict that ruins friendships it's how we have it right For me, now I see conflict as an act of love and reconciliation um, and an opportunity for people, for us to stay close. Like we're we're doing relationship maintenance, right? That doesn't mean it doesn't take me months before I can bring something up, but, you know, an act of illumination. And so it looks more like I start with framing, hey, I love you. I value you. I want to make sure nothing comes up in between us. So I was hoping we could talk about this. It looks like sharing my feelings without blaming them, you know. I've been feeling kind of hurt that, you know, you didn't show up on for me when I was going through this. I was just wondering what it might have been gone on in your end. You know, what are other outside circumstances maybe that I, I don't understand? It looks like sharing needs, like, oh, yeah, I would love it in the if in the future you could just do this. Like, what would that be like for you? It's collaborative, right? It's it's loving. And, you know, when I interviewed a, a an expert on attachment theory, he said, 
Securely attached people make other people look good during conflict because other people escalate and they de-escalate, right? If your friend starts being like, well, you do this, this, and this. Oh, yeah, maybe I do do like a little bit of that. Like, oh, think, you know, thanks for that feedback. What do you think about this issue that's coming up between us right now? That's such a good tip. I honestly needed this little section of this interview. I, uh, over the last, like, I'd say five years or so, I've just done so much self-work and, you know, even through this podcast, talking to people. And there was a period a couple years ago where a few of my really close friendships fell away. And at the time, I was like, oh, yes, this is definitely necessary. And then the more growth I've done, the easier it is for me to kind of look back and almost regret in a way because... I now have so many more tools to have dealt with that particular conflict that I'm like, I wish I would have said this. And and just the other day I was meditating and for some reason this one old friendship popped up and I had like the perfect little monologue of what I should have said that might have saved that friendship. But what I was failing to note is that I was completely right back then when, if I look back at the whole friendship, there were patterns that just kept coming up and as much as I de-escalated it, it was always there. And so I feel like that's the one sort of caveat of of self-growth is that sometimes we get so much better that we judge ourselves against the people that we used to be. But trusting mm-hmm. that, you know, that happened for a reason and and you can still, without going back and trying to bring back this thing that's already gone, you can still make an effort or mend whatever it is that's bothering you on your end. And so what I did is I ended up sending a message to this person who I haven't spoken to in years. And I was just like, you know, I was just reflecting back on what happened. And I should have done this and I should have been this way. And I'm sorry that I didn't have that awareness at the time, sending you lots of love in your life. And I think we both realize that we're not meant to be friends at this time. We're just in so mm-hmm. such different areas. But uh, this conversation just keeps bringing that up about <laughs> exactly how that how that went down. But I think also that situation has made me value the friendships that I do have now so much more. And I want to show up in a way that really be the friend that I want to have. And you have such such great tips around generosity and giving affection to our friendships. What are some of the the tips that you have found are received the best or or that uh, are the most effective? Yeah. So one thing that I learned in my chapter on generosity, I was screwing up every single chapter, was affection is really important for friendship because people decide how much to invest in a relationship based on their view of how likely they are to get rejected. Every time you affirm someone, you say to them, I'm not going to reject you. So it it frees them up to invest more in you, right? It makes other people feel secure. It's not about you just becoming secure. It's about you making everyone else secure around you because then you're going to bring out their best self in the friendship. What I didn't realize was that this is also an anxiously attached way to go about affection. I was trying to compliment a friend. She would always reject it. I thought it was her problem. I even gave her a disclaimer. Don't reject this compliment. And then would share a compliment with her. But what I realized while writing the book, I interviewed Corey Floyd, who studies affection. And he said, affection is, I feel warmly towards you. I express it and you receive it. If the other person does not receive it, it is not affection. You have to adjust the way that you express your affection because it's two people (laughs) at each end of it, right? So I was like, yes, it makes sense that trying to force my friend into affection isn't actually affectionate. Like not actually respecting her boundaries 
is it actually affectionate? There was so much ego wrapped up in my affection. Clearly, if I was trying to force her to receive it, it wasn't about her feeling loved. <laughs> um, so I learned that I did that wrong. Um, in the generosity chapter, I'm really working with this tension between how we've became a culture that's so focused on boundaries and yet part of people's rules of friendship and closeness is when I need support, you will show up for me. So what happens when we want to set a boundary, but our friend is at a place where they really need support. So I bring a lot of complexities to the conversations on boundaries that we can set what's called like communal or mutual boundaries, which means my boundaries are more fluid depending on how close we are and depending on what your needs are. I consider both of our needs at the same time to decide how to set the boundary. If you call me at 1030 to ask me to discuss the latest episode of Lost, I say I'm too tired. I set that boundary. If you call me at 1030 to tell me your kid has been harming themselves, that's not a boundary I'm going to set in that moment. Because if I, I take a step back and I think about both of our needs, yours are more urgent in that moment. And so I'm willing to be inconvenienced sometimes um, for the purposes of connection, right? And I'm also willing to inconvenience others when my needs are more urgent. Oh, I love that first thing you said about it's really about love languages within friendships. It's like, you know, is this is this how you feel loved or is this how I feel loved? Because if I'm pushing my way of feeling loved on you, then it's not about you. It's about me. And this should be about us. <laughs> so yep. that's awesome. And then also the self-awareness on the boundaries is great, too, because boundaries is I was going to say it's like this focus lately, but maybe it's just my focus lately <laughs> because I didn't have them for so long. And so. I know a lot of women or people in general didn't have boundaries for so long. And once you discover your boundaries, oh my gosh, it's like freedom. And if you're anything like me, you can get stuck in those a little bit too rigidly because you're like, nope, it took me 35 years to develop this boundary. I'm not letting it go. And then you kind of lose sight of the fact that, wait, this person really needs me. Like, what if I called somebody at one in the morning crying and they're just like, you know, my boundary is 11. It's just like so rude. So... Thank you so much for the uh, all of the tips that you put into this book. I, I feel like we're just getting lonelier, you know? <laughs> we have more ways to connect, but we're missing out on so much of that, like, empathetic, in-person connection. And then we get used to typing everything via text. And you're like, well, it's hard to show my emotion in person because there's no emoji right here. And so, like, I really do think we need to be retrained on our interpersonal skills sometimes. And so for listeners who want to learn more about this topic and connect with you, where's the best place they can connect online? Yeah, so Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends is the name of my book. I also share uh, research-based tips on connection on my Instagram at Dr. Marissa. G. Franco, that's D-R-M-A-R-I-S-A-G-F-R-A-N-C-O. And then on my website, uh, you can reach out for speaking engagements on connection and belonging and how to make friends. Or you can take my free quiz, which assesses your strengths and weaknesses as a friend and gives you some more tools. All the links for this episode will be at mindlove.com slash 249. I'm going to give you three options for challenges this week, but you know, you can always go for all three. That's what I'm going to do. The first one is to reconnect with an old friend. Reach out to someone you haven't spoken to in a while. Start a conversation. Try to meet up for a coffee. If they live far away, just 
like I said, start a conversation. You can give a little bit of that affection that we talked about or tell that person that you actually value their friendship, which might be a really great starting point to getting the ball rolling. Your second option is to sign up for something that's recurring. This one might be a little bit more difficult depending on what's available in your area, but I live in a really small town and I can tell you there's a few things that I can do. I actually already did this one, so I'm just gonna check off that box, but I found a little class for toddlers. And yes, it's for my baby, but I know there's gonna be a bunch of moms with toddlers there, so it's kind of the perfect place to meet people that are in a similar stage of life that I am. And it goes for 12 weeks, so I hope by week 11, I formed some sort of bond with someone. And then the last option is to give some affection or generosity to the friendships that you have right now. We gave a lot of great ideas within the episode, but a few more that we didn't really touch on is you can bake something for them. You can send a card to someone. You can teach a friend a skill. You can offer to connect them with someone that can help them. You can help them reach a goal. You can spend more time with them, you know, set a coffee date, buy them a gift, cook for them. I have been cooking for my friends. Once a month, I've decided to do a little dinner with six people. Sometimes they rotate out. A couple of them are the same every single time. They have kids, so the kids all play in our little play zone. And the very first time I did this, I know I mentioned this in a previous episode, but I was so stressed out. I'm like, why did I agree to do this? I was just living my life just fine without having to buy a bunch of food and clean my house and have people over in my space. But by the end of it, I was like, Melissa, remember this feeling. This was so worth it. I don't care what it costs. I don't care how much I had to clean, whatever. This is why I'm doing what I do. This is why I want money is so I can build my life around my happiness, which revolves around connection. So let me know what you come up with. Let's give each other some ideas. Reach out to me on Instagram at mindlovemelissa. If you'd like to support the show, the best way to do that is by joining Mind Love Premium at mindlove.com slash premium. You get early release and an ad-free listening experience. You get a whole backlog of over 50 episodes that are only available for premium members. And you get bonuses like meditations. Another idea is to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. I absolutely love these. They light me up. They change my entire day, week, whatever. You know, it kind of comes back to that giving affection. It's really easy to be over here just broadcasting and being like, why am I doing this? I'm stressed out, blah, blah, blah. Depending on my mood, because so much about podcasting lights me up. But it is just a whole other aspect of life, seeing how it's impacting some of you guys. So if you've already left a review, know that you are in my list of one of my favorite people. And if you haven't and thought about it, maybe consider it one more time because I freaking love it. And then the other option is to support one of my amazing sponsors and you can find them all at mindlove.com slash sponsors. And that's all for today. So thanks for giving your mind a little love today and I'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week. 